Well, if you have um, been around our community for the better part of the last five years, um, I feel like I need to say to you, the captain has turned on the fasten your seatbelts light, so please return your seats and tray tables to their upright and locked position and turn off your personal electronics. We are beginning our final descent towards the end of the gospel according to Matthew. Just quite an amazing thing after just about five uh, and a half years. If you haven't been around that long um, at Southridge, you need to know that over the last half decade or so, we have been taking a very long, very slow look at the story of the life of Jesus as told in a biography written, uh, historians tell us, by one of his good friends and followers, a guy by the name of Matthew. We have taken our time to listen carefully to what Jesus has said, to watch closely to the things that Jesus has done, and to think deeply about what that means for uh, who we are called to be and what God wants to do in our life. And, and, and yet, at the same time, as we kind of begin this slow descent towards the end of the book of Matthew, I kind of feel like we're ramping up and gaining momentum because we're entering into the part of the story that really is the single most important part of the life of Jesus. And that is looking at the stories, this, for the next six weeks, the stories that lead up to the death of Jesus on the cross, which we will celebrate, obviously, um, this coming Easter. And so as we begin to draw our study to a close, we're also kind of turning up the heat. We're getting to the heart of what it is that God what has trying to been say through, Matt, through Matthew this entire time. And so we're going to pick up the story this morning in Matthew chapter 26, Starting in verse 6, Jesus and his disciples are in and around the city of Jerusalem to celebrate the annual festival of Passover. Um, they've been staying in a town called Bethany, which is just a couple of miles away from Jerusalem, but they've come as pilgrims from the north of Israel to celebrate Passover in the city of Jerusalem, which was the custom of the day. Jesus has arrived, uh, we looked at, started about a year ago, Jesus arrives at Jerusalem in this sort of triumphal parade, surrounded by fellow pilgrims from the north country who believe that God has called him to be the Messiah, and they're praising God and proclaiming Jesus to be the king who they believe is going to rescue them from the oppression of the Romans and set God's people free, usher in an era that the Jews, some Jews called the kingdom of God. In the two or three days that Jesus has been in the city of Jerusalem, he's gotten into public debates with religious leaders and religious folks as he's kind of called them out for misleading God's people so that God's people were not becoming the people that God wanted them to be. And privately, he's been talking to his disciples about how God is going to judge Israel, destroy the temple, and he's calling his disciples to carry the, the mantle forward of becoming the community of God's people that God always dreamed that humanity could be. And so we pick up the story in Matthew 26, verse 6. Jesus is at a dinner party in the city of Bethany. And it says this. While Jesus was in Bethany, in the home of Simon the leper, 
a woman came to him with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume, which she poured on his head as he was reclining at the table. So let me set the scene for you. Jesus is at this dinner party of a guy named Simon. We don't know who Simon is, but I suspect that Matthew's readers knew who Simon was. Maybe he was a member of their community. Jesus gives him, or Matthew gives him the nickname, Simon the leper. Now we know that Simon doesn't have leprosy because if he was a leper, he couldn't host people in his home for a dinner party or certainly nobody would go to have dinner in his home, especially leading up to the Passover because if you go enter into the home of somebody who's afflicted with leprosy, not only could you catch leprosy, uh, but you would contract kind of spiritual uncleanness, which meant that you would not be allowed to participate in the Passover festivities. And that was the whole reason you traveled, you know, for days down to the city of Jerusalem in the first place. So most scholars surmise that Simon the leper is perhaps somebody who Jesus once cured of leprosy and who became a friend and a fan and a follower. And he's hosting Jesus at this dinner party. They're reclining around the table. In those days, um, Jews ate most of their meals sitting on chairs at, at dining room tables like we do. But when you throw a dinner party, you push that furniture aside and you bring out this long, low table and you surround it with cushions. So that your guests can kind of lie on their elbow against this sort of pile of cushions. Their feet angled away from the table. And you can kind of stack them in like sardines. You can fit more people around the table. But everybody's still comfortable. They're lying down. They're on cushions. They can reach with the other hand and eat. And you can stay there all night eating and drinking and talking. And just kind of celebrating together. So Jesus is at this dinner party. Matthew says, and this woman, an anonymous woman, he doesn't give us her name. She comes into the room where everybody's eating and she's carrying this alabaster jar of perfume. And she pours it all over Jesus' head. It's kind of a strange scene to us. I mean, to be perfectly frank, we use oil this was uh expensive perfume was a, a jar of oil which we only use oil for two purposes we cook or fry with it and uh and we use it for things generally that have to do with our vehicles um and neither of those things do we pour on our heads in fact we don't pour anything on our head um I guess there's two scenarios where somebody might dump something on your head. If you um, have been inappropriate at a pub, somebody might dump something on your head. Or if your team has just won a major championship, they might dump a tub of Gatorade on your head. You know, like um, what didn't happen to the Patriots a couple of weeks ago. <laughs> I promise that's the last time I mention it until the next time it comes up. Um, but, but this was a totally common scene in the ancient world. It was a social custom. They used these uh, jars of perfumed oil as a cosmetic. Uh, people live most of their life in the out of doors, walking from place to place, while Israel is a large part of it is a desert. 
and it's dusty and it's windy. And by the time you arrive at the house of the dinner party where you're going, you're covered in filth and you're, you feel gross and gritty and you got sand in your teeth and in your hair. And so as you come in, the host would offer you this perfumed wine that you would put in your hair and you'd rub in your beard and you would kind of put it on your skin a little bit. And it was just kind of a way to freshen up. I mean, there were no powder rooms. There were no, you know, sinks where you could just quickly wash up or whatever. So you have this oil to kind of feel clean again, to feel fresh and like you're now appropriate to join this dinner party. And so Jesus and his disciples were there. This woman comes in and she pours this very expensive perfumed oil on Jesus' head. That's all Matthew says. It was very expensive. You have to kind of read the other gospel accounts to get a good sense of just how expensive this perfume was. It came in an alabaster jar, probably about this big, that would have been imported from Egypt to store the perfume, but the perfumed oil itself could have been made from the nard plant, which was imported from India and was very expensive to import. Or maybe it was an oil mixed with myrrh. The word for perfume sounds a little bit like the word myrrh, which was a very expensive uh, spice or a very expensive oil in the ancient world. But by very expensive, this is what we mean. One of the other gospel writers tells this same story and he says the oil was worth more than 300 denarii. Now, a, um, a single denarius, 300 denarii, one denarius, was what an average farm laborer got paid for one day's work. Which means that more than 300 denarii is more than a year's wage for the average general laborer in ancient Israel. I mean, do some quick math, right? If you're talking about somebody who works a minimum wage job six days a week, which they would have worked, between eight to 12 hours a day, probably closer to the 12-hour mark, um, at $14 an hour, you're talking about a bottle of perfume worth about thirty-five dollars or $45,000. And it's like gone in 60 seconds. She just puts it all over Jesus' head and it's gone. And the disciples couldn't believe it. It says in verse 8, when the disciples saw this, they were indignant. The word means that their, their gut was kind of filled with this righteous anger. The kind of anger you feel when you think you have witnessed a severe injustice perpetrated right uh, before your eyes. It's the kind of anger that we've seen spread across the country in the last week in the wake of the Colton Bushi verdict. Just people filled with this anger that says what happened isn't right. That's how the disciples felt. Why this waste, they ask. This perfume could have been sold at a high price and the money given to the poor. They're like, what a waste of resources. She took $35,000, $45,000 and just kind of flushed it down the toilet. And the disciples were like, do you know how much good that could have done for the poor that are all around us on every side? And it's true that there were poor folk within miles of where the disciples were eating. Hundreds and hundreds of thousands of them, maybe more. You see, at Passover time, 
the population of Jerusalem because of all the pilgrims, swells from about 600,000 to more than 3 million people who gather in a two-mile radius of the city of Jerusalem. And most of them are just common day laborers in Israel who are really quite poor. Interestingly, the rabbis would say that right around Passover time, in fact, in the eve of the Passover, was the most important time of the year for a Jew to be extra generous in the giving of alms to the poor. This is what the disciples are saying. Like, look at this wasted money, right? How many times had they heard Jesus say that the kingdom of God would be good news to the poor? They remember the time where they saw Jesus look into the eyes of a rich young entrepreneur and tell him to sell everything he has and to give all of the proceeds to the poor. In fact, in their very last private conversation, Jesus told his disciples that God would judge all humanity on the basis of how, they, how generous they were with the poorest of the poor. They believed that Jesus would be 100% supportive of their indignation at this waste of all of these resources that could have been used so much better rather than just being poured down the toilet. In verse 10, it says, aware of this, Jesus said to them, why are you bothering this woman? She's done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you, but you will not always have me. Jesus says, leave her alone. She's done the right thing. When he says, the poor you will always have with me, he's basically quoting a passage of the Old Testament law in in Deuteronomy chapter 15. In that section of Old Testament law, um, Moses, who is the writer of the law, is saying that um, when you loan money to the poor in the land, You should schedule it so that every seven years, every debt incurred in all of Israel would be canceled. No matter what the debt was, no matter how steep it was, no matter how much they had paid back or not paid back, every debt gets canceled on a seven-year cycle. So, I mean, how many of us are carrying student debt or mortgage debt for longer than seven years? At the end of seven years... Somebody comes, knocks on your door and says, hey, can I have your mortgage papers? You hand over your your mortgage papers and he rips them up and he hands you the deed to your house and he says, hey, you did a good job trying to pay that back. The house is yours. Could you imagine? I mean, the whole point of it is to kind of, to make sure that nobody's life spirals into economic chaos because of debt that has spiraled out of control. The whole point is to minimize the gap between the rich and the poor. The whole point is to prevent class warfare from breaking out in Israel through the wealth redistribution that comes through debt cancellation. It's interesting, isn't it? In a capitalist society 2,000 years later, probably the only sin in capitalism is wealth redistribution. I earned my money and I get to keep it. That's not how God's society works. In God's society, um, those who have lend open-handedly to those who don't have. At 0% interest, by the way, you can't make money off a loan. You can only lose money. 
because God figures if you're in a position to loan money to someone who doesn't have money, then you can probably afford to take a bit of a hit on the loan. You can afford it if it doesn't all come back. And the goal in Deuteronomy 15 verse 4 is this. However, it says, there need be no poor people among you. There need be no poor people among you. The point is there is enough to go around. If those who have share with those who don't have, then everybody's going to have as much as they need. And so the goal of eliminating poverty then ends up with this verse. Uh, Deuteronomy 15, 11 says, there will always be poor people in the land. Therefore, I command you to be open-handed towards your fellow Israelites who are poor and needy in your land. Jesus says, the poor you will always have among you. It is sad to say that now there are some folks who in our capitalist mindset take that verse to mean there's always going to be lazy entitled people who are just trying to game the system and who aren't really interested in working. So don't worry about trying to serve those people. That's the exact opposite of what Jesus is saying. The disciples, Jesus says, the poor you'll always have among you. And the disciples say, exactly right. The lost says we should be open-handed and generous instead of wasting our resources like this woman has done. We should have given this money to the poor. And Jesus says no. <laughs> says the poor you will always have. There will always be lots of opportunity for you to serve the poor. He doesn't deny what the disciples have said, that there are literally hundreds of thousands of people who are desperately poor in that exact moment, within two miles of the disciple, hundreds of thousands of people who are desperately poor, who could have benefited greatly from a piece of that thirty-five dollars to $45,000. Jesus doesn't deny that at all. He says, listen, the poor, you will always have. Those opportunities to serve the poor will always exist, and there are by far more than enough resources in the room for you to start serving the poor if that's what you're really passionate about. We don't need this one jar because there's more than enough available for us to deal with the situation with those who don't have enough. Leave this woman alone because she used this jar to do the more important thing, the more beautiful thing. What is the more important and more beautiful thing than serving the poor? This woman has anointed Jesus. And the key to understanding the whole story is to understand what it means to be anointed. Because there were three uses of oil for anointing in ancient Israel. And this woman anointing Jesus, I think, hints at all three. Number one, people were anointed with oil when they were being crowned as the king of Israel. When they were being placed on the throne as God's appointed and anointed leader of the nation to rule in love and justice to defeat all of God's enemies and to usher in an era of peace 
and prosperity in the land. Most Jews in the first century believed that the Messiah who would come was going to come as God's anointed and appointed king who would defeat the enemies of God and usher in an era that some Jews referred to as the kingdom of God. An eternal global era of harmony between humanity and God, humanity and themselves, you know, each person and everybody else in their life and all of humanity with creation, harmony with God, with yourself, with each other and the world. That's the kingdom of God, lived in the presence of God in a way that will last forever and spread around the globe. And the Jews believe that the Messiah was the appointed, anointed king of God to usher in the kingdom of God on world, so in the world, so that God's will would be done on earth just as it is in heaven. And when this woman pours the oil on Jesus' head, she is declaring her belief that Jesus is the Messiah, the King that God has sent into the world to bring the kingdom of God. Secondly, you could be anointed with oil, not, you know, if you were the king, but secondly, if you were being ordained to be the high priest of Israel, the spiritual leader of all of God's people, the one who was responsible to connect people in loving covenant relationship with God. The high priest was the one who would represent God in the presence of the people and represent people in the presence of God. The high priest was the one who would bring the instruction of God to the people and who would bring the prayers of the people back to God. The high priest was the one who would bring the forgiveness of God to the people and who would bring the worship of the people into to God, into the presence of God. The high priest was the mediator, the go-between, the one who created covenant relationship of love between God and humanity. And when um, the woman poured this oil on Jesus' head, she was saying, I believe that you are the high priest sent from God to be the mediator between humanity and God to restore us in right relationship with God. Number three, you could be anointed for, with oil as your body was being prepared for burial. Jesus says in verse 12, this, he points this out. He says, when she poured perfume on my body, she did it to prepare me for burial. In the ancient world, um, when you bury a loved one, you don't just go to the cemetery and put them in their final resting place and then walk away. You, you take their body wrapped in linen to the family tomb, which was cut out of a cave and there were rock shelves cut out of the walls and you would take their body wrapped in this linen and you would place it on the rock shelf where you would leave it for about a year. You would leave the tomb, roll the stone in front of the opening to the cave and you would leave the body there to decompose for a year. And at the end of the year, you'd go back into the cave. There'd be nothing left but bones and you would gather them up and you would place them neatly in an ossuary, a stone box that was about this big by this big and then place the box on a shelf and that would be their final resting place. Now imagine what it's like to be somebody who's 
had a couple of deaths in the family this past year and you are going into the grave into the family tomb to kind of gather up the bones of one of your loved ones and put them in this ossuary box but you've got like relatives whose bodies are decomposing in different parts of the cave just imagine the aroma in that space to prepare a body for burial to anoint it with perfumed oil and spices was a way to try and um, confer dignity on this body that would be decomposing. It, would be, it was a way to try and mitigate the smell of the decay in the year as the body sort of decomposed. It was considered to be the ultimate act of kindness and godliness to prepare a loved one's body for burial. It was so important. There's a story in the Old Testament about how God himself buried Moses' body. And the rabbis used to say, when you prepare a body for burial, you are behaving like God himself. The rabbis would say, that if there is a body to be prepared, you are exempted from every religious duty, from the prayers, from worship, from reading the Torah, everything. You are exempted from all religious duty in order to attend to this most important final act of kindness, a kindness that can never be repaid, an act of conferring dignity and honor one last time on this person that you love. That's what this woman was doing. Because you know who doesn't get a proper burial in the ancient world? People who die shame-filled, criminals' deaths on a cross. Where Jesus will end up at the end of the story at Easter. Jesus says, she has done a beautiful thing because she has honored me by anointing me as king anointing me as high priest and anointing me in preparation for the burial and in all three acknowledging that Jesus is the Messiah because in Hebrew the word Messiah means the anointed one. Here's what the woman was confessing about Jesus. She was saying, I believe that you are the Messiah, the appointed and anointed king that God has sent into the world to defeat the power of sin and death and usher in an, the era of the kingdom of God where in increasing ways God's will be, will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Where there will be increasing harmony between people and God, between us and ourselves, between us and each other and between us and the world, the world will be a different place because God has sent you, Jesus, as king. I believe God has sent you to be the high priest, the one who will bring the forgiveness of God, the one who will bring the instruction of God, the one who will mediate uh, the presence of God to us, the one who will stand between us and God and join us together again in covenant relationship of love. And I believe that you are going to accomplish all of this in your death on the cross. And Jesus says that statement is the most beautiful thing that woman could have done. In fact, he says in verse 13, truly I tell you, wherever this gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. And here we are 
2,000 years later, talking about this anonymous, marginalized, ignored, forgotten, despised, unsung hero who did this beautiful thing of acknowledging who Jesus is, the Messiah who would become king and high priest through his death on the cross. And here's what Jesus is saying. By saying what she has done will be told. Jesus is saying because I want everyone else to follow her example. I want everyone else to, like her, acknowledge me as the one who... uh, mediates the presence of God into your life. The one who has the ability to bring the forgiveness of God into your reality. The one who has the ability to join you together with God in a loving covenant relationship that starts now, transforms your life, and lasts Forever. Jesus says, I want everyone to acknowledge me the way she did as the king that God has anointed and appointed and sent into the world. The one who has the power and authority to defeat the power of sin and death in the world and in your life. The one who has the power and authority to bring transformation to who you are, to set you free from the guilt of what you've done and to set you free from the shame of who you've been and to make you someone who is brand new. The one who has the power and authority to usher in an era in your life of harmony with God and harmony with yourself and harmony with the people around you and harmony with the world. I want everyone to embrace me in faith that I I have accomplished these things through my death on the cross, just like this woman has proclaimed. Jesus says, that's what I want people to see in my death. And I think Jesus is saying, then I want, not just for people to acknowledge me with their convictions and their beliefs, but to acknowledge me with their life and their behavior. I want them, like this woman, to pour themselves out lavishly, extravagantly, and sacrificially out of their loving devotion to me. This woman spent a year's salary, poured it out in 60 seconds in an act of loving devotion to Jesus, gave all that she had, gave gave perhaps more than she could afford, but spared no expense, um, was uh, willing to spare no sacrifice, but instead lived out a life of loving Jesus with all of her heart and all of her soul and all of her mind and all of her strength without restriction or reservation. And the question I was confronted with as I was reading this story this week was, if somebody looked at my life, and read off of my life, came to an understanding of the depth of my love for Jesus Christ, would they see this kind of passionate, sold out, all or nothing devotion to Jesus based on the way I lavishly, extravagantly, and sacrificially live out my love and devotion to Jesus? I doubt it. More than that, I think Jesus wants us to emulate the lavish, extravagant, sacrificial giving of this woman in the way that we live towards each other. The comment Jesus makes to the disciples is, the poor you will always have among you, but you won't always have me. For now you have me, and so this act was appropriate. The implication that I hear in that 
is that there's no Jesus sitting in front of you waiting to be anointed for his death, which there isn't, then we ought to default back to what Jesus said before, the poor you will always have among you, so be open-handed and generous that there might be no needy among you. I think part of the extravagant, lavish, sacrificial life of pouring ourselves out in love for Jesus includes the pouring ourselves out in love for those who don't have what we have. I mean, it's interesting in, in Acts chapter 4, it's a story written about the life of the early church. And this is the way the early church is described. Listen to the resonances to what is said in Deuteronomy 15. It says, and God's grace was so powerfully at work among them that there was no needy person among them. That's straight out of Deuteronomy. For from time to time, those who owned land and houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, and put it at the disciples' feet and distributed it, and it was distributed to anyone who had a need. Jesus has been clear all the way through the gospel according to Matthew, that to love God is to love people. And every time we love people, we're living out our love for God. This is the challenge at the beginning of this season called Lent, which began this past Wednesday, this season of preparing our hearts to celebrate the death of Jesus at Easter. Typically, the season of Lent is marked by three decisions of those who want to enter into the preparations. First of all, the decision to fast, to give up something, to remove something from your life that has been a spiritually unhealthy or unhelpful presence in, in um, robbing or distracting you from giving that full-on passionate devotion and love to Jesus Christ. For me, it sounds dumb for a whole variety of reasons. Among other things, I gave up Twitter. I just can't do it. Twitter, in some ways, becomes so unhealthy for me. And so the, the time that I've given up on Twitter, I now replace with the other two things. I'm trying to replace with the other two things. It's marked by fasting and prayer. The time in the morning when I would spend scrolling Twitter looking for headlines, I now spend in prayer with Christ and fasting, prayer, and giving alms. Sacrificing of myself, of the abundance that God has given me so that other people would have enough. I challenge you as we enter into this Lent season, as we prepare to celebrate the death of Jesus at Easter, as we listen to the stories of the cross and begin to understand why it is that Jesus died, may we become the kinds of people whose hearts are prepared to respond the way this woman has responded to the love of Christ. Let's pray. Jesus as someone who's been around the church a very, very long time, Easter comes and goes. And sometimes, maybe oftentimes, the reality of what it is that you have done for us, the depth of your loving devotion to us, the crazy truth of the grace that sets us free from our sin, that invites us to become something new, the um, the possibility to live our lives in harmony with you and ourselves and with each other and the world, to, for the world to become a different place. God, sometimes it just doesn't sink in. 
I pray as we hear these stories, starting with this one this morning, I pray that you would begin to draw us towards yourself, towards understanding what you have shown us of your love on the cross. And I pray that you'd give us the courage to respond. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.